Greetings, radio listeners. Uh, I welcome you to this edition of Belize Hard Talk, The Tipping Point. I'm Paco Smith, your host, and we have a very, very unique program scheduled for you today. I say unique because of a number of reasons. Number one, you know that this show normally deals with some very, very hard-hitting political issues. But today, we're going to take a step back and deal with something that is extremely important to Belize, its survival, and just basically the world in general. And it doesn't really involve politics, although we know that everything in Belize <laughs> is affected by politics in one fashion or the other. But nonetheless, the topic for the day will be permaculture. And I have as my guest, Mr. Christopher Nisbet, who is the owner and proprietor of the Maya Mountain Research Farm, which is located in San Pedro, Colombia, Toledo District. And I'm very pleased to have him here with me today on a number of levels because, number one, I recently took part in what is known as the PDF, or the Permaculture Design Course 2014, which was held at the Maya Mountain Research Farm. And I can tell you, it was definitely a worthwhile experience. It opened my eyes to a lot of things that I had not known before, and those things that I was somewhat cognizant of, it clarified for me. But even beyond that, it was both an enlightening and spiritual experience for me. I spent two weeks at the farm, um, just basically learning, living, and getting in touch with nature. It was a great experience. There were individuals ranging from a, a, a wide array of countries, including the United States, Italy, the Netherlands, Canada, and of course we had local Belizeans like myself and others, both from both the urban and the rural areas. What more can I say? What I'll do is I'll just introduce Christopher and let's get this discussion started. Christopher, welcome to Belize Hard Talk, The Tipping Point. Paco, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, man. It's my pleasure. Well, Chris, let's begin. I, I'd like for the, the audience to just get to know you a bit and maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, your, your past, your present, and your future. Uh, my name is Christopher Nesbitt. I reside in San Pedro, Colombia, Toledo. Uh, I've lived there for the last 25 years, and before that I spent about three years in different parts of the country. I'm originally from New York City, and I'm on the exchange program. Um, for all those Belizeans that love New York, they could have it. I think I'll stay right here in Belize. <laughs> I feel you, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so uh, I do farming. Uh, I've been involved in farming for the last 25 years, and I bought an old abandoned citrus and cattle farm and I started to repair it using what are now called permaculture principles. Uh, from going from primarily citrus and cattle, now we have managed about 600 species of plants. Uh, we raise animals. Um, uh, we built a basically a small semi-urban area. We have bedding for 24 students and water systems and electrical systems. and so it was a slow process, and we've been doing that. And now we specialize in education in uh, agroforestry, 
agroecology, renewable energy, uh, permaculture, and sort of biomimicry, how we can replicate form and function of primary habitat and into uh, useful agroecologies that provide for food, fiber, marketables, medicinals, and other needs for uh, and fuel for, for people who practice it. Wow, now that's a mouthful. <laughs> and you, 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 you encapsulated it quite eloquently, I must say. Now, for Belizeans, uh, both at home and abroad, as you heard, Kristano just, just come. This man, they a long time, right? And um, all Belizeans in Toledo District definitely know Chris and his family. And it's just us urban dwellers up here who have just gotten to know the man, the myth, <laughs> who is Christopher Nesbitt. Well, Chris, uh, you, you use a few terms there that I'm quite certain are new to some of the listeners out there. And I was just wondering if you can provide some clarity, some definitions, and then we can move forward. The first one, um, I, would, I would wager to try and, and define it, but you have a lot more experience than myself. So let's start off with the term permaculture. Well, permaculture is a, sort of a design methodology that was created by uh, David Holmgren and Bill Mollison in the 1970s in Australia. And it's a combination of the words permanent on agriculture and also permanent culture. And it's a way to make um, our society more sustainable, both in energy and food, um, in, in such a way that we're not cannibalizing the future to feed today. Uh, so it's, it's trying to make something, build a society that's not built on expansion through debt, but built on expansion through uh, biology. And uh, the result is that we end up with uh, better living arrangements, more sustainable uh, food systems, uh, with uh, less, uh, better energy returned on energy invested. Instead of having to buy ramen noodles that came from California, we could be producing things here. And so it's all about local food economies. Excellent description. Absolutely. Now, I, for the radio listeners out there, although I pride myself as being an astute student, I will admit that I have in front of me a very thick booklet that we were given during the permaculture design course. And it lists a lot of information with regards to exactly what Chris just described and also uh, some other elements that delve into the 10 permaculture principles, the ethics of permaculture, and things of that nature. So I'm not trying to show off here, but I will share with you what I have here in front of me. <laughs> and basically, uh, to piggyback on what Chris said, uh, permaculture is very much inclusive, very much hands-on, very much intuitive. And for me, it's something that, well, I would say comes somewhat naturally because I'm the type of individual that doesn't necessarily go with the status quo. And as we get into the discussion revolving, involving permaculture, you'll find a little bit more what I mean with regards to that. So first and foremost, what I'd like to share um, in terms of the instruction that I received during the PDF um, excuse me, the PDC 2014, is that permaculture consists of a, some core ethics and they basically evolve around three themes. Earth care, people care, and fair share. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on that for me, Chris? 
Yes, I, I think that the uh, present economy has built, uh, been built on a series of extractive modalities where we are taking things without renewing them. Um, this is a, a problem for the future. I mean, they, they, they we live on a finite planet. It's only so big. Um, so we have to take care of the environment around us. We have to, uh, in everything that we do, we should uh, see if that's sustainable so that my grandchildren's grandchildren will get a benefit. Are they, or are we eating our great-grandchildren's inheritance? So, um, so that's part of Earth care, take care of the planet. People care is about um, doing simple things. You know, uh, you see somebody, a, a lady fell down in the drain the other day, and uh, I watched from my restaurant as uh, two people walked by and didn't help her, when, and then uh, two other men saw that she was in distress and came running over and helped her up and picked her up. It's as simple as that, or giving a ride to a hitchhiker, or... Uh, if you see somebody who's homeless and needs food, you give them food or you give them money or something like that. One of the things that we do for, for people care is uh, every week we send food to a program called Helping Pe Older People Equally, which is run out of the Red Cross building in Punta Gorda. And they have 22 clients, and uh, we try to send food every week for that. And we don't put all the food on the plate, but we try to put some food on all the plates. And uh, so that's a program that we've supported for a long time. So people care is very important. Fair share ties into that, and, and, and fair share can be seen like uh, uh, how do we make it so that people all have access to resources instead of uh, uh, monopolizing resources to a select few? How do we share things so that everybody gets a benefit? Um, so fair share is very important as well. Well, I thank you very much for that explanation, and definitely in hearing you describe these um, ethics more in depth, and I know you can relate to this, Chris, because um, over the past 20 odd years in Belize, uh, we have seen a shift, a shift, a considerable shift in many, many ways with regards to society. And I believe that with regards to the, the core ethics of permaculture, it harkens me back to a time when Belize was a lot more innocent. You know, people cared for one another a lot more, people cared for the land a lot more and things weren't just basically at such a fast pace where we're just abusing this jewel that we have. One of the things that you, you said to me which really um, rings a bell or strikes a chord, uh, it harkens back to when I was studying in Jamaica. And one of the things that people would like to say when they heard that I come from Belize, they say, oh, we've got so much land. <laughs> I guess to... Uh, an individual from, a, from an island, um, when you look upon Belize at the map, you'll say, oh, it's a big country, relatively speaking. But what you said is that we live in a finite environment, and that is so very true. I think that uh, a lot of the practices and policies that we've adopted here in Belize don't really take that into account, whether it be farming, agriculture, um, anything dealing with marine technologies or what have you, it's as though we're on, on the fast roller coaster that, and we're not even thinking about you know, how we're going to stop, if we'll stop, or what will happen when we stop. So I can really relate to what you said. Well, yes, that's true. I mean, one of the things that we live in is a rapidly expanding population in this country. When I came to Belize in 1985, the population of the country was about 150,000 people. I think it was 1986 or 1987, I got picked up on the southern highway 
by Mr. George Price himself, uh, who I had no no idea who he was. <laughs> and we talked, and uh, and he was a really nice guy, and he was just driving around by himself in an old Land Rover without air conditioning, with no entourage, no bodyguards, nothing. Uh, he was in the opposition at the time. I didn't wasn't paying attention to politics. But uh, as we drove around, he talked about how all of us make up this country believes and that, that we need to work together for the good of the country. And, uh, and I, that was something that really stuck with me. Not, of course, in my young age and lack of historical context, knowing who George Price really was. You know, now, now we all know that he was the founder of the country and the father and uh, won independence and you know, was a, a great man. And, uh, but at the time, I didn't know that. He was just some guy who picked me up hitchhiking in, in a Land Rover with no air conditioning. So, yeah. So we, that's one of the things that we have to do is. Um, Anyway, now, now fast forward 28 years and the population of the country, uh, well, from when I first came here, the population of the country has more than doubled in 28 years. Uh, we live in a, what looks like a very large country um, for the population that we have, but the, the, that's kind of deceiving because the fact of the matter is most of this country is not suitable for agriculture. We have savanna, we have pine ridge, we have mangrove, we have karst landforms, a uh, huge percentage of the country is not suitable for agriculture. So the agricultural land that we have is golden. It's really important that we do our utmost to protect it. Um, most of the really good agricultural land is geared up for export, the citrus and bananas, for example, and sugarcane, which is important because we need foreign income. Uh, but we, are, we don't have very good food security because what we're doing is we're producing commodities and exporting them and then taking the money from those commodities to import food. Uh, that doesn't bode well for the coming future as petroleum su supplies do. So we need to start re-examining uh, both the rate of growth of our population, uh, if it is possible to stabilize uh, our population by choice, or if we're going to wait until uh, we end up like Haiti or Rwanda, which is two possible futures, um, if we don't stabilize our population where our uh, we exceed the carrying capacity of the land, and that's not very far off. And if you look at a doubling period of 25 years, um, you could be 25 years from exceeding the carrying capacity of the country, and it feels like there's a lot of room because you haven't, you still have 50% of the land is available. Another 25 years later, we'll exceed that. So are we talking, is that 25 years from now? No. Is that 50 years from now? Mm, probably not. Is it 75 years from now? 75 years from now, if we continue to grow our population, we're going to start coming up into constraints about where we can do our farming or what we can grow. Um, so 100 years from now, if we continue doubling population, we will have exceeded the carrying capacity of this land. And you know that, That's not negotiable. We live in a finite country, and if we continue expanding our population, we will meet those limits. So, yes. Excellent points, Chris. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in keeping with the discussion, I'd just like to share with the listening audience the 10 permaculture principles. And these are very, very distinct principles which characterize the entire concept and approach that employs permaculture. Number one is the principle of diversity. Fairly uh, self-explanatory, but it aims to integrate a variety of benefits excuse me, of beneficial species of food, plants, and animals into design. This built interactive polyculture system which provides for human needs and also for the needs of other species. 
That's number one. The second is the principle of the edge effect. I found this one very, very interesting. And I'm going to get a little bit into uh, the excellent presenters and instructors that we had during the, the PDC uh, 2014. I can recall Mr. Albert Bates uh, speaking about the edge effect. And it was a new concept to me. Again, these things are, are things that we actually see amongst us, but we're not really cognizant of it. And in, in effect, the principle of the edge effect is that, in general, there is more energy and more diversity of life on the, where two type systems overlap. On these borders, one can access the resources of both sides. Using the edge effect and other natural patterns that you observe creates the best effect. Any, any um, perspective on that? Yeah, well, we only need to look at Belize, and, and you look at hot spots of marine biodiversity are on the reef, and that's where the deep water meets the shallow water, and all that surface area uh, for, for habitat for, for uh, and, and birds. And, uh, or we go inland, we go to the, for example, the mangrove, you find the same thing, where, where the, the sea meets the land, that area there is incredibly rich. Or the riparian zone of every river. Um, or the area between the edge of broadleaf forest and savanna, where, where people like to go hunt because the, the animals will come out of broadleaf forest looking for food and the hunters can see them. Uh, so any place where you have two different um, uh, ecosystems meeting is where it will be very, very diverse and a lot of things going on. It also applies even to, to human settlements. You look at the expanding peripheries of most of our communities or hubbub of energy. You have uh, people building new houses, businesses coming in. You have a lot of energy being developed right between undeveloped and developed land. So, yeah. Excellent, excellent. The third permaculture principle is the principle of energy planning. Basically, placing the elements of your design in such a way as to minimize the use of energy, including fossil fuels and human labor utilizing the energy and resources that you have first on site and then from outside the system as effectively as possible. On-site energy resources include natural forces such as gravity, wind power, water power. This saves time, energy, and money. Now my reflection on this uh, stems from the presentation provided by the instructor Miss Nicole Foss very, very enlightening discussion. She's a very engaging individual, and when she speaks, you have to listen, because she speaks with such authority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes, Chris, your, your take on this uh, principle number three, the principles of energy planning. Okay, th this is a very important one, and very topical, because as our population expands, we need more and more energy. We live in an energy-drenched society. Right now, um, we have petroleum in the country. We have very small deposits of petroleum, but everybody from everywhere in the world wants to come and get them. All the oil we have in Belize right now would keep Los Angeles running for maybe six days. So, uh, um, so if we were planning for the future, maybe we would hold some of that in reserve for Belize. Uh, right now, the energy system that we have is run by BEL, which is owned by a company called Fortis. The money that they make is repatriated back to Canada, so that represents a perpetual drain on our economy uh, as they take money out of the country from the money that they earned in the country. So 
if we were doing very good energy planning, we would have a national energy system that was owned by people in Belize or companies in Belize or, or something like that. We would also take advantage of our uh, maybe integrating solar. Um, for example, the UB campus in Belmopan is a very large uh, grid-tied solar system, um, and we could do that in other parts of the country. I know that uh, Mark Miller at Plenty Belize is looking into putting up a, a large uh, solar farm. Um, and then for areas of the country where uh, it's going to be in co not cost-effective to run electrical line in to a community that where the, the energy and money spent to do that is not going to be returned by the energy usage and the, the profit that BEL can make, so we need to give people access to energy there in the form of photovoltaic systems, which is one of the, some of the work that I do. I do a lot of work for fisheries department. Uh, in the last few years, I've installed, I think, uh, six systems in, in schools in Toledo District and up in Cayo um, and uh, in other protected areas. So you, photovoltaic energy is a good way to go for rural areas. Uh, so energy planning is very important for the country. Absolutely, and I'm glad you elaborated on that because uh, one of the things that I, I noticed at your farm is that you utilize solar energy. Very, very key, very, very critical. I have for many years, although I have to admit that I'm a complete novice when it comes to solar, solar power. I've always you know, just intuitively said we live in the subtropical region of the world. We, we get a lot of sun. It only makes sense to take advantage of it, to utilize it. And it's a, a clean energy. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, yes, it is. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Now on to principle number four, the principle of energy cycling. In a natural system, there is no waste or pollution. The output from one natural process becomes the resource for another. Recycle and reuse all of uh, the resources as many times as possible. Now, this one is very, very striking for me. And I'll say it's striking because, uh, how, can I, how can I put it? I just have to be blunt and say it. The course had a very, very deep effect on me. As I return home, my yard, my kinda, high, so you know, chop the yard and whatnot. Now we had a big bag of grass, right? Legal grass, right? <laughs> Normally I would just put that out and make the garbage man carry it. But I said to myself, you know what? I think I'll hold on to this and try to see what I could do with it, right? <laughs> and even, for example, the kitchen scraps and so, you know? I, I got a lead bag on the counter right now, banana peel, all that type of things they eat there. And uh, I really, really believe that I, I'm going to start some kind of compost pile or something, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the principle of energy cycling is important because we, we, we have a lot of things that flow through our lives and our return. It was um, in terms of uh, um, every farm in the country that has pigs should have a biogas plant, including mine, and I don't yet, but I hope to. <laughs> Uh, because we could take our pig waste and cycle it through the biogas plant and get burnable methane and that would reduce our dependency on fuel wood, wood if, if you burn fuel wood like we do or propane if you buy propane. Um, so that would be a way to take advantage of an a energy stream and a nutrient stream where you still get the slurry which is still rich in nitrogen and good for fertilizer. Or in the case of like a, um, what they're doing up in Orange Walk at the sugar refinery, they're taking the bagasse and they're burning that and doing cogeneration with it, which is a really good idea because it's a way to maximize uh, your, uh, your uh, return in the form of calories from your output. So you, you put all this energy into growing sugar cane, 
you sell the sugar cane, but you're left over with the byproduct. Now they're able to burn that and turn that into electricity, which is important because that minimizes the amount of electricity we have to buy from Mexico, and it minimizes the amount of electricity we buy from uh, Fortis and sending our money to Canada. So, yeah, uh, energy cycling is very important. I can really um, appreciate the examples you gave. Yes, the situation with the bagasse mm -hmm. up in Orange Walk. Absolutely, it's a, a prime example of utilization of the principle of energy cycling. Okay, on to principle number five, the principle of scale. Creating human scale systems. Choose simple, appropriate technologies for use in designs. Only create systems that are manageable. Start small and take achievable steps towards an ideal goal. One of our instructors at the course, Ms. Marisha Auerbach, she definitely delved into this topic and she gave great examples with regards to uh, how it's fundamental to permaculture. And I'm going to check my notes a little bit after you, while you're doing a little talk there, because I want to just demonstrate to you that I was taking notes, right? <laughs> but yes, if you could elaborate a little bit with regards to the principle of scale. Um, okay. Uh, one example of scale is that uh, most people in Belize could get by with a bicycle. If they, if they don't live in a rural area, uh, we could get a bicycle. We, we could have a very bicycle-friendly country because distances aren't that large. Um, so that's a scale in transport. Um, uh, other things of scale is local food model production. You know, how much can you grow in your yard? We could all grow. I, I, uh, my, my, my wife, Seleni Logan, when we drive around the country, she's got an amazing eye and she can see a Moringa Olifera tree from a half a mile away. Uh, she's got this incredible botanical literacy. And uh, everybody could be growing that in their yard. Growing it is only half of it. You have to eat it too. Um, so that's a principle of scale. Um, so what you want to do is you want to find things that will work on the scale that you have. Uh, and some of these things are not scale upable. Like you cannot, if our population continues to expand, maybe a bicycle won't be so useful in the, in the near future. Yes, 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 definitely I can relate to that. And uh, I guess it also ties into, like you say, appropriate technology. Uh, utilizing things that are within the environment and just being at one with the environment, not degrading it. So yeah, that is definitely something that I can vibe to. On to pr permaculture principle number six, the principle of biological resources. And that is using natural methods and processes to achieve tasks. Find things in nature, plants, animals, microbes, that are supportive of the system design and minimize outside energy input very critical. Yeah, for example, we, we have an area between the, the kitchen and the main building at MMRF that was drenched in sunlight. So we put in some small grow beds and then we put a, uh, we found a spool of wire that had broken and we went and we collected the wire and we made a trellis between the two buildings to shade that area. And up there we have chocho and we have um, uh, Malabar spinach and we have beans and we have passion food growing over there. So this we have a very small footprint of grow beds, um, you know, a few square feet, uh, and it's covering many, many square feet of area. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking advantage of the, these plants' propensity to grow in vines and provide shade, uh, maximizing our input. Another example of that is we live in an agroforestry system that I've been working on for the last 25 years, 
And so in the morning, I'd go around with a pigtail bucket and my machete, and I'd pick food up. And then I'd take that, and I'd convert that to pig food. And the pig foods convert that to manure and pork, which I don't actually eat, but we sell the piglets. Uh, and then, uh, then we take the manure and we compost it, and then we use that to, to grow our, our trees and our, some of our uh, vegetables if, we, if it's very well composted. So taking advantage uh, of um, things that are available to us um, because of they grow well here or, um, or you have them. Like we raise rabbits and we feed all, like Paco, you could raise rabbits. They don't make any noise. Uh, you could feed them food scraps, and then you feed them the food scraps, and then you collect their manure, and that's fantastic. Uh, can compost with and make your plants do really incredible things. So it's all about taking advantage of these biological niches that we have. Yes, absolutely. That is very, very informative and, and very relevant. Okay, moving on to principle number seven, the principle of multiple elements support each vital need and essential function in more than one way so that a temporary failure in one element will not stop the functioning of others. Also, recognize there is almost always more than one way to achieve any task. I guess this sort of ties into multi-functions, um, um, doing more with less, and just extending that on to the entire design process. Yeah, elements are important. What are things that make a house, a home, or a neighborhood? And how do we replicate that so that um, you want shade? Okay, well, but you want food, so you plant a sea almond because that will provide some shade, and you could park your car in the shade, for example, or sling a hammock in the shade. And if you put it in the corner of your lot, then you're shading your other neighbor's yards. And, uh, and so that is a, 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 a something that provides more than one resource. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, and then redundancy and say water system. So you have, you have WASA delivering water to your house, but you back up your water supply with rainwater. That way if the, the pipe breaks and you don't have water for like four days because busy digging up the, the, the street to figure out where the, the pipe broke, you have a backup system. So it's all about building redundancy into the, our necessary systems. Excellent. Yeah, that term redundancy really, really reigns in my mind because um, it, it, it's fundamental to the entire process as well because you always want to make sure that you have a backup. You have a backup and that energies are not wasted. You're maximizing the, the input and getting a great output. On to permaculture principle number eight, the principle of multiple functions. Most things can be used in a variety of ways and for a variety of functions. One rule of thumb in permaculture is to try to design three uses for every element of the system. This can save space, time, and complication in any particular project. Now, for those who have not had the blessed experience of doing the PDC, it may sound a bit, um, how can I put this? It may sound a bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> All right, let me just put it like this. Designing something so that it can have at least three functions, it may sound like a, a little bit of pie in the sky, but trust me, when you're out there in the elements, it's definitely something that's viable 
and necessary. I look at two elements right now to, to kind of illustrate this. One of them, um, the samwood tree, Cordialia d'Or, very important to the history of Belize. It's part of why the English ended up here because they needed to remaster sailing ships after stealing the gold from the Spanish. And the Spanish didn't take kindly to it and shot them with cannons. Sometimes they'd break the sails and they'd have to come back and remaster ships. So uh, a sandwood tree in my farm serves several functions. Number one, it's providing shade for the coffee, the cacao, the cardamom, the ginger, and the turmeric, which are all subcanopy, and the vanilla, which are all subcanopy species that we grow. Um, it is also uh, growing and, and dropping lateral branches. As the crown goes up, it sheds lateral branches. As those lateral branches hit the ground, they've already dried standing up in the air for a long time, and that becomes small diameter fuel wood. Very, very useful uh, for us since we cook with fuel wood. Um, Long-term function of, the, of that is uh, that will eventually be uh, furniture. You know, I don't know if I'll be around for it, but my children will get the benefit, and they, they can cut it up and make furniture with it if they want. And, and uh, so, when you any you uh, you get three functions. Uh, the fourth function automatically is beauty. It's, I mean, it looks pretty. You know, I like it. Another function is the roof of my house. Um, I've got a roof of my house. It protects me from uh, uh, from rain and the sun. It also uh, serves as a place to put my solar panels, so I'm collecting energy, and I also have rain gutters installed, so I'm collecting water. Um, so I'm g it is a, a water collecting and energy collecting machine, the roof of my house. Just a, just a simple zinc roof, but it's providing multiple functions. So multiple functions are really good for any element in, in our life, that we should try and get as much out of it as we can. Absolutely, I can attest to that. Now on to the ninth permaculture principle, the principle of natural succession. It says, work with nature and the processes of natural systems and anticipate future developments through research and observation when necessary. And this harkens back to some of the fundamental things that were imparted onto us when we first began the PDC, and that is that you have to take time and observe. You know, you just not rush into things and say, okay, well, it's going to be like this and that. You're dealing with nature. And one of the things that really um, sticks in my mind is something that Albert Bates said. He said, you, the object of permaculture is to go the way that nature wants you to go. You don't want to work against nature because inevitably when you do, you damage the earth. And when you damage the earth, you, you're damaging your livelihood, the livelihood of every human being on this planet. So, yes... If you'd like, Chris, can you elaborate a bit on the principle of natural succession? Uh, yeah, actually, that applies very well to what we do. Um, we live in, in what would be broadleaf rainforest, and um, it was severely damaged land when I bought it, uh, but I noticed that the plants that come back after severe damage, uh, we were hit by a hurricane in 2001 and by a fire in 2008, but we have a set of plants that come back, which collectively make what we call wamil. They are the Cecropias, or the trumpet tree, uh, uh, Bursera simaruba, or gumbo limbo, the Schizolobium parahyba, or quamwood, uh, uh, plum or Spondius mambin, uh, and Heliconia, and these are the plants that emerge in a damaged area. Uh, so what we've done is we've replicated that pattern, and we, we have a, a host of what we call um, pioneer species that we put in, things like banana, cocoyam, cassava, um, pigeon pea, uh, sweet potato that we put in, uh, which will give us a quick yield. And planted in amongst those are the elements that will comprise our future food for us. So we're looking at things like avocado, jackfruit, uh, mame, 
bread nut, mango, um, various trees of like golden plum. Uh, and then when those trees reach a certain height, we take advantage of now they've got that height and we'll put in the subcanopy species, which are things like uh, coffee, cacao, uh, turmeric, cardamom, uh, and later on vanilla when we have it. So it's all about you look at how things would succeed naturally into a damaged area and replicate that form and function and come up with something that is both um, uh, calorically productive and, and that you're getting a lot of energy returned on the amount of energy you're putting in, but sustainable. In the long term, uh, long term it's going to evolve and you're not trying to fight that. You're not trying to stop that and hold that at one stage. You're saying, okay, this system is going to mature and develop, and along the guidelines that it wants to develop, we're going to stagger our production so that we're getting a harvest cycle every step of the way, starting at about the third month, all the way through to year 25. You'll be getting stuff out of it. I have big sandwich trees that I can take out when I want, but I don't want to take them out yet because um, I don't need to take them out yet. But when I need a hip replacement therapy or whatever it is in a few years as I get older, mm -hmm. I'll have, uh, that'll be my retirement fund right there. So uh, working with that is a good thing, yes. Absolutely. And again, I'm hearkening back to my time at the farm, and one of the terms that you used from early on was biomimicry, and that kind of stuck with me. You know, you, you assess what's going on and try to mimic it uh, in a natural fashion. So, yeah, your, your words reign supreme in my mind, Chris. <laughs> and finally, on to the tenth permaculture principle, that is the principle of relative location. Place every element of your design in relationship to others so that they benefit from each other. For example, store tools where they, uh, where they will be used. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we designed our farm like that, but we can do cities and towns like that as well. You know, you put your market uh, near a place where the buses can come in. You, you, you uh, site your dump outside of town far enough that people can get there, but not so far that it's, you know, but not so close that it it's, uh, becomes a problem. Um, in the farm, we try, uh, we put the, our wood pile right next to the kitchen, and we put our kitchen right next to the house, and we have our bathroom some distance from there so that if people need to use the toilet, they don't have to go jogging off uh, on a 15-minute hike to get to the toilet, but it, yet at the same time, um, it's not close to, to where we live because we have a composting toilet, and uh, it's all about um, putting things where they you'll get the maximum benefit out of it. In an urban setting, let's say like here in Belize City, I always think about food production and what we could do to maximize food production here in the city because we live in a food desert. We, we have an area uh, outside of some mango trees, um, uh, you know, and a few pear we see, and a lot of moringa, Seleni notices. Uh, outside of those things, we don't see a lot of food production here, but we could have food production. We could be doing container gardenings uh, and taking advantage of excess streams of, of compostable materials. We could be raising, uh, doing aquaponics system. I know there's an aquaponics system out behind Lord's Bank uh, which I haven't been out to see, but I intend to, um, uh, where they're taking uh, hydroponic grow beds and using the fish waste from raising fish. You could do that here in the city. You just need access to good sunlight. You don't even need particularly, you don't need good soil. You could do it without soil. You could do it on the rooftop of a building, and yet you could have this highly productive food system. You tie that into industrial ecologies like, oh, down, down the street they have a pizzeria or around the corner they have a, a, a food market or a restaurant, you know, and you could take the scrapings from that, use that for fish food, or you could compost that and raise earthworms in it, and then you take the uh, earthworms and you feed it to the fish, 
or the black soldier fly larvae and feed it to the fish, or the food scraps and feed it to the fish. The fish eat that. Um, they convert that into uh, meat, that uh, fish that you can eat, and then to the waste that comes out, your, your hydroponic grow beds, the bacteria on the gravel convert that into a form of nitrogen that the plants can uptake, cleaning the water and oxygenizing the water. You can have highly productive systems on a very small footprint. That's one of the things that we need to think about it as we move forward as a country is, is where are we going to be able to produce all our food in the future and how, uh, as our, the population of the city expands rapidly, um, how do we maximize our food production in the city? So planning around uh, uh, you know, excess revenue and energy streams um, and uh, uh, food stream and calorie streams, how do we build redundant food systems that uh, augment the this food that's coming in from other parts of the country or world? Well, yes, you, you, you touched on a few things that I am particularly interested in, and that's aquaponics, and also the, the element of just urban gardening and things of that nature. And one of the things that I would like to see come to fruition, uh, because I am the president of the Alumni Association of the University of the West Indies here in Belize, the Belize chapter for the country, I would love to see if we can some way, somehow, implement uh, urban gardening practices here at the open campus because to my knowledge there is approximately nine point something land, uh, excuse me, nine point something acres of land available here that really isn't being utilized. It's there, but uh, hey, why not let's see if we can do something productive with it. So therein lies part of my inspiration. Now I think that going into the 10th permaculture principle is a, is a very nice segue that we can go into talking a little bit more about the farm. And I'm so sorry that this medium is, is only radio. I wish it could be visual, but anyone who has a Facebook account, which is pretty much a lot of people nowadays, they could, they could look at the, the farm's uh, Facebook page. You could just inform us of what that is. Uh, we, we have a Facebook page so that uh, to keep the world interested um, in what we're doing and try to share what we're doing, which we think is important. Um, it's uh, www.facebook.com slash Maya Mountain Research Farm. And you can go there, and I try to update it every couple of days to keep it interesting. And you can see photos of the, the work that we're doing on the farm and some of the work we do in the communities. Excellent, excellent. And trust me, uh, Outside of actually going to the farm and experiencing it yourself, this is the second best thing. I would advocate that you, you take that trek down to San Pedro, Colombia, and see it, experience it, feel the earth, you know, get to know it. But if you can't, hey, if you're in New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami, Dallas, wherever you may be, London, you know, Toronto, <laughs> wherever, Ottawa, check it out on the, the Facebook I personally uh, posted some, some photos that were taken during the PDC, and uh, you can check them out at my Facebook page, which is just basically Paco Smith, P-A-C-O-S-M-I-T-H, and there's a full stop, a period at the end of Smith. <laughs> so check it out. I think that you'll really, really be interested in what you see. Now, getting back into the, the whole concept, you know, um, when you told us the story about the farm and how it evolved, Man, basically, you replanted the forest. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. We, we, we planted an analog to the forest. We, we, 
the arboreal architecture is similar to the primary rainforest. Uh, we have canopy species, emergent species, subcanopy, terrestrial, uh, just similar to the primary rainforest, but the species composition is entirely human-centric. We have things, uh, large trees, Salmonea saman, which are leguminous and uh, suitable canopy for cacao and coffee, some erythrina, we've got mango, we've got avocado, we've got lots of samwood, we have some mahogany, we have some cedar, we have some teak. Um, we have lots of different fruit trees and timber trees and some are leguminous. Uh, and beneath that we have herbaceous perennials in the forms of banana and, and, and papaya and uh, then we have cassava and cocoa yam. And basically if, if we have people who come from abroad and don't have the visual literacy to see what they're looking at and uh, I've learned to give people a farm tour on day one or two so that they look, understand what they're seeing because um, somebody left in a huff and told us that we weren't actually doing any farming, we were just living in the jungle, which was kind of a compliment because that was the, that's what we were trying to accomplish. So that actually, um, that was a nice compliment. And uh, I actually took the time to explain to them what they were looking at. Um, and, and they ended up, they still left, but they ended up leaving and saying, oh, wow, that's amazing. But um, so, yeah. So they, in effect, they did gain an appreciation for what you accomplished. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I'm just thinking that when you purchased this land, it was a, an orange uh, orchard, a yeah. grove. And, and I, I'm just trying to think, you, you, you put in a lot of work. I mean, you probably took out all the, the orange trees, and then you did the biomimicry, like, as you say, but that was uh, also human-centric. I mean, it's just phenomenal what you've done. And I, I can't say enough how much it would be inspiring for an individual to go in and check it out and see it for themselves. And as you were describing uh, what your, your sojourn and your, your journey has, has taken you to, I, I'm reflecting to my notes here, and I'll never forget that Albert Bates uh, explained the difference between utopia and utopia. He said utopia, spelled U-T-O-P-I-A, basically equals nowhere. And utopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, equals a good place. And in my very, very fundamental and basic understanding of permaculture, I have to say that if I were to cast my vote, say that you've created utopia, that being E-U-T-O-P-I-A. Thank you, Paco. It's nice <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. Yes, man, definitely. And you know, I, I would like to also uh, speak to not only individuals, well, I don't know what my listenership is, but individuals in the urban areas in particular, I think it's critical that we gain an appreciation for what Belize has to offer outside of Belize City. I love Belize City. It's like any other big city in the world. It has its problems. It has its issues. But we can all work together to make it better. But uh, for inner city youth, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's instructive that you get out and experience the diversity of Belize. You know, we have some people that have been born and raised in Belize City and they've never been to the Keys. I mean, it's hard to believe, but it's, it's reality. It's true. And, I mean, we, we basically, we have a good thing here in Belize. And trust me, uh, a lot of people outside of our borders know it too. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, we, that's... Uh, <laughs> 
That's sort of the topic of discussion right now, the Guatemala's unfounded claim to belief, which is Paco is alluding to without mentioning. <laughs> uh, and the fact of the matter is that um, all the problems that we're confronting now or that are on the horizon of expanding population density and carrying capacity of land, we only have to look at Guatemala to see what happens if you don't heed that. Uh, look at uh, When I first was in, in Guatemala in 1985-86, you traveled through the Paten and you were traveling through a tunnel of trees. And now it's all cattle pasture and lots and lots and lots of people and uh, not lots of land and it's totally packed up and the roadside is littered with uh, places trying to sell you soft drinks and, and poverty, crushing poverty, the kind of poverty that you don't see. Uh, even here in Belize City where, where you f feel a, a hopeless level of poverty that you don't feel in rural parts of Belize, which is part of why working here is so important. But compared to Guatemala, we're rich. Every part of Belize is rich compared to Guatemala. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we, we, we have to worry about because we have traditionally been Guatemala's pressure release valve for their, their population problems. And uh, you know, part of why Belize is such a nice place is because we've got relatively low population density. And so that is something that we need to be aware of and that needs to be part of the public dialogue about the future of Belize, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I definitely echo your sentiments. And uh, something that you touched on just now harkens me back to one of the expeditions that I went on with uh, Will Mejia and the Belize Territorial Volunteers, in which we have uh, we actually went to the border marker at Gracias a Dios down south in PG in the Toledo district, and it was very, 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 very interesting because as we went up the river. On one side is Belize, on the next side is Guatemala. And you can see a stark contrast with regards to the topography of the, of the land. Belize's side, for the most part, is lush. You see uh, vegetation, you see a lot of plants and what have you. And on the Guatemalan side, like you said, pastures. You see cows and it looks barren. Yeah, that's a problem. And then you look at the, thi the problems that Guatemala has. Their water table has dropped significantly. Um, we did some work with Ministry of uh, Health a few years ago looking at nine different communities in Toledo District for suitability for photovoltaic water pumping. Um, two villages, one village actually got it out of that project, which was the village of Aguacate. But we went all the way up to Halacte and San Vicente, and they were telling us, yeah, we used to be able to get water, but now they, they, pump, they put the pipe in so much depth and they can't find water any at all. And, they say, well, you know, and that's because that they've disappeared the forest on the other side. When you do that, you lose that water lens that, and the ability for landscape to store water in the landscape, which is very important for us in Belize because we, are, uh, we have a very long and pronounced dry season. Um, but in Guatemala, they don't have that. They don't have that buffer zone. They, they, their, their groundwater has gone very low. So, um, yeah. That is a very, very good point. And I think it's something that we, we must really take very close attention to. Because, I mean, I am a firm believer in the approach in life that if I can learn from someone else's folly, better I do that, you know, than experience it myself, right? <laughs> Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, certain aspects of the farm. Uh, you had mentioned about the composting toilet. That blew my mind, right? Because, well, I know about latrine, you know. Well, everybody knows about latrine, basically. And it's, it's not a pleasant thing, 
right? <laughs> but uh, with regards to the approach that you've taken at the farm, with regards to uh, utilizing the composting toilet, I found it very, very innovative. Very innovative, and it's definitely um, environmentally friendly. And most importantly, it, it doesn't really smell. Yeah, we, we have what's called a modified Vietnamese double vault latrine where we have two vaults and each vault has two stalls over them and you make your deposit in, in, the, in the stall and then you cover it up with some rice holes or some sawdust. We, we use rice holes because they have a good rice mill in the village and we can get that in abundance. And, uh, and by balancing out the carbon-nitrogen ratio, we, we don't get much of a smell. Now, when we have a lot of people, on a uh, uh, we get a bit of a smell. Um, mostly that's from the urine, but it's it's never overpowering, and uh, it's not like some other toilets that I've used in rural areas where they toilets really smell bad. <laughs> and then plus, as Paco and I were discussing, you have what's called the the dreaded splashback factor. Uh, we managed to avoid that, so uh, it's hard not to laugh about feces because feces is such a humorous topic. Uh, so when we talk about it, I try to make people laugh on the farm. But what we had to do is uh, we we traditional methods of feces disposal, um, uh, defecating into a hole in the ground, which puts the feces directly in, in contact with the water table, are biologically not so much feces disposal mechanisms so much as uh, pathogen dispersal mechanisms. Um, we live in an area where we have a lots, lots and lots of ass-to-mouth diseases that, that uh, can cause sickness, gastroenteritis, amoebas, giardia. Uh, there was a cholera scare um, in, in Toledo district in the, in the, I guess it would have been 1989, uh, when, when there were people in Colombia who had cholera, and that was from Guatemala, and people were dying in Guatemala, and nobody died in Belize, in part because our base population was healthier than they were in Guatemala, and less susceptible to dying from cholera. Uh, but these are all legitimate concerns. Um, the other issue that we have is that a lot of these, uh, particularly rural locations, but even here in the city, it takes a great deal of energy to obtain water, and then we turn around and defecate in it, uh, and then we put it into a soak away where it soaks away. I mean, it just moves further into the, the water table. Um, and so the, these so-called solutions to dealing with human feces are actually just a, another set of problems in escrow. And um, it will take a very large cultural change for people to get comfortable with the concept of, of uh, using composting latrines, but uh, in the long term is very important because uh, we, we're cycling essential nutrients uh, into places where we can no longer access them, uh, like phosphorus, for example, and nitrogen and other things. Um, so using a composting toilet is a good way to do it. The one that we've had has used, um, has had up to 50 people on site using it and uh, without much of a smell. Uh, it, when we have that many people, it does have a smell, but it's not not necessarily a, a really unpleasant smell. Um, uh, and I think that toilet cost us about $700 Belize to build. It was using simple ferro cement. We had to buy some lumber and put a zinc. Uh, and as Paco could probably tell you, we have big windows on the front so you can enjoy a wonderful view while you're um, uh, taking care of business in the office and writing checks, as we call it. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep, I made more than one deposit there. <laughs> I'm looking over my notes here with regards to composting, and I, I believe that Marisha might be proud of me because I'm going to mention a few things that she brought to the table. And I basically just wrote composting, why? 
and it's because it holds soil particles together and, and enhances water holding capacity. It can warm your soil and uh, let's see, it, um, it fuels soil microbes and also it enhances the nutrient holding capacity of the soil as long as it's no higher than 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, we do composting, a lot of different composting. Our composting toilet, um, we, we, it's a long retention and composting, so it, uh, we empty out with the vault. Uh, it takes three years to fill the vault, then we cap it and use the other one. Then it takes three years to finish, and then you go back and empty out the first one. And the first one, the last time you used it was three years ago, and the first time you used it was six years ago. So by that time, because of the long retention time, the, the risk of pathogenic transfer is minimized to zero. Um, you have thermophilic composting where the bacteria get very hot, uh, plus you have long retention time. So the risk is uh, close to nil. Um, but composting for food scraps or uh, crop residue, also very essential. And, and you can make wonderful soil. And uh, you can turn marginal soil into good soil with compost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Very, very informative. Now, I recall when you were making your presentation to the, the PDC group over the two-week period, you talked a little bit about the CM composting toilet that you have there. And you, you told us something that, I guess, to, to the layman here, it's, it's like, wow, what, for real? But you said that when you opened up the first vault after the three-year period, just give us a description of what you found. Okay, well, actually, uh, you, I went into the, the f uh, it was the second vault after we filled it up and we're using the first vault again. We've been cycled it back and forth. We had Mexican television come down from Quintana Roo to film about permaculture in Belize, and uh, they came to the farm, and, and so they wanted to see the toilet. So I opened the back of the toilet, and I reached in directly under the, the chutes where the feces was deposited. I reached, and I grabbed a handful of the compost that had only been there for one year, and I bought it out, and I invited the film crew to smell it, which they did kind of reluctantly, but they admitted that it smelled like sweet and earthy because it had been completely broken down. You, you have uh, your bacteria and your fungi and everything uh, break that down into to things. And so it was completely broken down. That's incredible, really, really incredible, and it's very instructive. I think that in terms of uh, rural communities uh, especially. They need to look into that versus the dreaded latrine. <laughs> and getting back to my notes a little bit, I remember um, Marisha, she talked about carbon and nitrogen. Carbon being the browns and nitrogen being the greens. Carbon, analogous with crunchy. And under that heading, we have stuff as, such as dry grass, dry leaves, eggshells, small branches, rice hulls, what you use at the, the farm, sawdust, paper, cardboard, nut husks, and termite nests, wood lice, basically. Under the heading of the green nitrogen, we have the distinction of juicy, and let's see, fresh uh, grass clippings, fruits and vegetable scraps, manure, dead animals. I have here with a question mark, milk. I don't know why I put that. Uh, I have no idea. It might have been you, you were looking at your half-drunk coffee cup and wondering where to dispose of it, but that's, you can dispose of that anywhere. That's totally suitable food for soil microorganisms. Okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, push on a little bit more here. We're doing fairly well on time. Okay. Uh, let's see. 
Now, we also had some very instructive discussions during the PDC, which evolved around some salient topics, but for the layman out there who isn't really in tune or attuned to what all permaculture involves, I'd just like to share very quickly some of the, the subject matter that we were enlightened with. And in particular, these dealt with, these were pro um, provided by uh, Ms. Nicole Foss. She talked about energy literacy. I found that very, very interesting because for one thing, well, it's something that we know intuitively, but I think that we don't lend enough insight and analysis to it, is the significance of fossil fuel use. Uh, the world is basically addicted to fossil fuels, and it is a finite um, commodity. You know, we've seen countries go to war over it. Uh, we've seen people die behind it. It's happening on a daily basis throughout the globe. And as you mentioned, you know, we have petroleum deposits in Belize, which makes Belize somewhat attractive uh, to certain elements. And I think that it's very, very important for Belize's security to kind of get weaned off of it, you know, and look more towards natural, other natural elements um, in terms of energy. For example, solar, hydro, wind power, things of that nature. You know, I have seen on different websites and magazines humongous um, uh, wind-generating propellers. Um, I think they, they do it somewhere in the, the North Sea. I, I believe it is. I, I, I have to check my reference on that. But wind is something that is basically free. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if we can capture it and utilize it, uh, why not? Yeah, there's no good reason not to. Right? Um, the the uh, time to do that is now. Gear up and get into that while there's still an abundance of petroleum um, because the embodied energy in those systems is significant and there's not going to be anything that's going to replace petroleum. Um, so uh, we have good wind potential here in Belize. In fact, uh, I do a lot of photovoltaic installation out on the Keys and I'm seeing more and more uh, wind turbines out there on private residences and, and uh, uh, and solar panels are out there. Um, uh, they have solar uh, farms in various parts of the country and wind farms in, uh, um, uh, all over the world right now. I mean, the United States has lots and lots of them. I was in Spain in the Alpujarras Mountains about 15 years ago, and uh, you saw these gigantic wind turbines in the hills, and they were taking advantage of a microclimate created by the, the, the Alpujarras Mountains rising up out of the Mediterranean as the winds are coming off the Mediterranean, they're condensed, and, and, and as there's less space for that wind to uh, pass through, the, the rate of wind passing through is accelerated, so that they were able to get very, very good wind turbine. I was at a conference in, in Amsterdam uh, about 15 years ago as well, maybe 20 years ago, on, uh, on, on agriculture, and uh, right there in downtown Amsterdam, you can see behind the train station across the, the bay or whatever it is, the body of water, very large wind turbines. Now we could be doing that here as well, and in fact we should because we have a great wind potential for large parts of the year. Um, but like anything, it's it's good to diversify because you you can't count on any one thing to do it. 
in this country, and that's true for most people, unless you're lucky and you have a good job. Most people in this country do multiple things. You know, I do a little bit of farming. I do some car mechanics. I, you know, I do a little bit of farming. I do some uh, solar installation. I get every now and then I get a chance to do some teaching, um, because not any one of those is going to float my boat. And uh, so Belize should stand the same way. We should diversify our energy thing. But gas is a huge step forward. I really applaud. Uh, the sugarcane farmers for uh, and BSI for coming up with that. I hope that they work out an agreement that's equitable to all parties. Um, I understand they're working on that, but that's really important for the future of this country. Um, so energy is very important. The petroleum that we have, we have very small deposits of petroleum, and um, they will be depleted within a few years, all of them. And you look at uh, BNE, they've, they've already peaked out, maxed their production. Uh, if you look at the the, the their production level is the classic side of a bell curve. If you know what a bell curve is, it's shaped like a bell. It's flange at the bottom, it starts to climb up, it climbs up steep, then it levels off, and then it goes down and repeats the same pattern on the other side. Some variation in the rate of the energy descent, uh, but it's, it's called a bell curve, and that's classic. All energy sources are, all, are like that. All petroleum discoveries are like that. So everybody knew we had petroleum in Belize, but we didn't have a lot. And when petroleum was cheap and abundant, they were finding big finds elsewhere the little bit of oil that we have in Belize wasn't worth it. Now all of a sudden, oil is trading at $100 a barrel or maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, and all of a sudden our, our little minuscule oil deposits are of interest because you, you know companies can make money on that. Now the big problem we have is the energy return on energy invested. In some place in the United States, they're saying, oh, we're going to we're going to get, uh, we're going to frack. We're going to, we're going to get the natural gas out of thing. Well, that involves putting a lot of chemicals and things in the water, and fracturing that, which means they're polluting their their water table. You have people that turn on the faucet from their well water, and the water catches on fire because it's, it's got, you know, methane and natural gas in it. And um, we want to avoid that in Belize. Uh, now, I'm not against oil extraction. Um, because I see that uh, the country needs foreign uh, currency, uh, particularly to pay off its debts. I totally get that. Um, but I think that we should make sure that uh, Belize gets a long-term benefit from it, because we, when these companies come here and extract oil, if they screw up the country and, and pollute our water and, and do whatever, it doesn't make a difference. They'll go back to wherever they came from, and they'll leave us here with the mess to clean up. You only have to look at what's happened in places like Nigeria and Brazil and, and other countries that were blessed, and I put blessed in quotes, with petroleum because it's a double-edged sword. You know, yes, it's good. There's money, there's some jobs and everything, but the environmental damage uh, can be significant. And sometimes the cost to the country long-term will exceed the benefit to the country. And so what we in here in Belize need to do is think about, okay, we have petroleum. We don't have a lot of it. How are we going to manage that so that it will be sustainable for the long-term uh, and so that Belize can get the most most benefit from this potential minor period of abundance. Yeah, Chris, I really appreciate you putting that into perspective because I think that a lot of people don't really understand the situation involving Belize's petroleum deposits. You know, intuitively here, oh, we got oil, oh, good, all right, we'll make we, you know, try to take advantage of it. Not, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that, but like you say, it's finite. And make we see how we could get the most, will maximize the most benefit uh, from it for the society. And, well, on a personal note, with regards to offshore drilling, I'm not in favor of that because it's just, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like playing a game of Russian roulette. I mean, you know, basically, if what happened 
um, in the Gulf of Mexico happens here in Belize. Our fisheries, our marine resources are done. And you know, a lot of people depend on that type of livelihood from marine resources. So in, in, with regards to that, I say, make we uh, stay away from that. In terms of the terrestrial, my position is that, yes, let us exploit, in quotation marks, the oil resources, but in a sustainable fashion, and one in which it's as much safety and security is being taken with regards to the extraction. Because there's always the possibility that something could go wrong. And like you said, you cited examples in, in Nigeria, Brazil, and other places where this has happened. And it all harkens back to what you said, that the fundamental tenet of permaculture with regards to harmony, harmony with the land and the reality that Belize's land is indeed finite. Yeah, that's true. And actually, uh, uh, my endorsement of petroleum as a, uh, a way forward for Belize is based on uh, economic expediency. The country needs money. The government provides services to the people of Belize, and we need that. We don't have a very good tax base. A lot of people don't generate enough income to pay taxes, and the government needs money. I totally get that. Um, so for uh, terrestrial oil extraction, I totally support th th that, the need for it, again with the caveat that it should be done intelligently. Uh, offshore drilling, <laughs> man, that's a really bad idea because uh, I forget how deep the, uh, uh, the oil that they were, uh, where the, the explosion was in the Gulf of Mexico, but my understanding is the oil that they were considering looking for in Belize, some of it is considerably deeper than that. And so the energy returned on energy invested of extracting that is not favorable, and then the consequences, the consequences of something going wrong would be devastating to this country. We, we draw a lot of income from our marine environment, both in fishing, and sustainable fishing, and I do a lot of work working for fisheries department, and I see how hard the men and women of fisheries department work to protect our fisheries resources. Uh, plus there's tourism. A lot of people come to Belize to go diving or to lounge on a beach. I can tell you, having been in Mexico, um, in, in, uh, on the Gulf Coast of Mexico, and you have these beautiful beaches with big splotches of, of uh, tar all over the place that get on your clothes, and, uh, and nobody's enjoying these wonderful beaches because they only look wonderful from about 100 meters away, and once you get up close, they don't look so good again. Uh, we don't want to do that in Belize because if we, if we damage that, um, we will have long-term repercussions to meet short-term needs. Uh, it's all a, a, a balancing act. You know, how, how do we maintain uh, quality of life that we need now? How do we maintain government services? How do we service the debt that, that the country has right now? And it's all based on revenue. And one of the wonderful, easy sources of revenue for government of Belize is petroleum. But we have to balance that with, you know, it's not just uh, next five years and the next five years after that, next five years after that. We have to think, well, how many people listening to this have children? Uh, how many of those children have children? How many of those children have children? There's a great, uh, uh, great Belizean by the name of Mr. Henry Fairweather, who I never had the privilege to meet, but I, I, I read about him, and, and he was a survey man, and when he retired, he started planting out uh, mahogany trees. Uh, he died, I think he had been planting mahogany trees for about 15 years, and in his 15 years of planting those mahogany trees, he planted 175,000 mahogany trees. And his feeling was, well, Belize could be the OPEC of mahogany. So what we need is more people like Mr. Henry Fairweather thinking about the future and what's good for this country uh, and setting into motion the things that will make Belize 
a wonderful place to live long after you and I and everybody listening to this are gone because we're only here for a finite amount of time too and what we want to do is try and make Belize a nice place so it wasn't just nice for us but most of us have children and most of them will have children and most of them will have children and what we need to do is, is safeguard the future of Belize so I really appreciate that Chris you know, you, you mentioned a term, when I first heard it at the PDC, it, it kind of struck me because I had never heard the term, and I think you've already gone on to explain it, but it's uh, energy return on energy invested. Very, very critical. Very critical to permaculture, and I think that Belizeans need to be, become attuned to that concept. You know, you, you want to make sure that you're, you're doing something productive, but you want to make sure that that balance is there with regards to the investment that you make and the energy that is coming back from it. And you've given several examples of that. So I just wanted to mention that, you know, that's something that we, we would like for people to take note of. With regards to the entire subject of energy, I think that if I were to try and encapsulate it, I would say that for Belize, for the benefit of Belize, Belizeans, visitors to Belize and just future generations of Belizeans, we need to really, really think long and hard about renewable energy uh, sources. It's critical. And we have a lot of sun, we have a lot of uh, wind, and we have a considerable amount of water. Let us use them judiciously, but also beneficially with regards to developing this nation. I totally agree with that. You, I, I actually, I'll finish the thing on energy return on energy, energy invested. If, uh, if it takes seven calories to get 10 calories of petroleum out of the soil, we're not getting 10 calories of petroleum out of the soil. We're getting three. And that's where large parts of the world are right now. And now I know everybody to cry about how the price of, oil, um, price of diesel gone up and price of gas gone up on how good it used to be. Well, my advice to you now, enjoy it. Enjoy it. That $10 a gallon diesel, five years from now, you want to look back and talk about, why, remember when diesel made only $10 a gallon? It won't stay at that, that level. And that's something that we have to get used to and we have to project into the future about how we develop our, our cities and how we develop our country. Um, because uh, we're, we're utterly dependent on petroleum for a huge amount of the food that we eat that's imported coming in containers and then we're utterly dependent on petroleum for a huge amount of the food that we produce in the country because we're using combines now and uh, we're, we're having larger more centralized farms managed by less people uh, and they're using equipment in, in, in instead of using human labor um, and that's a model that can only persist as long as petroleum is cheap and there's a time not far in the future I mean in relative future uh, might be in my lifetime, might not be, when that model will no longer function properly. And we need to set up alternatives. One of the things that we talked about during the permaculture design course is uh, there's an economist by the name of Milton Friedman. He was a terrible human being. And uh, he was father of what they call the neoliberalism uh, and uh, sort of monetary concept, the idea that we have smaller governments and everything is privatized. We're privatized water and electricity and instead of these being functions of the state or functions of the government it would be a function of uh, for-profit enterprises and everything will function better. He was a terrible human being and he caused untold suffering everywhere in the world where this was practiced. Uh, but one of the things he said was that um, when they were sort of 
uh, relegated to a side because nobody was paying attention to them. And so we need to keep feeding the world with our ideas so that when the crises come and they're desperately looking for ideas to pick up and implement, our ideas sitting there waiting for them to pick it up. And that's what's happened. Well, we're looking at a bunch of other different crises coming up on the horizon. So the things that you learn in, in the permaculture design course are, are all things that we need to seed out there and make people aware of. Because when the crisis has come, and they are coming, uh, we need to have viable alternatives to the status quo when the status quo can no longer work for us. Very, very insightful and very instructive. Chris, I wanted to know if we could talk a little bit more with regards to some terminology involving permaculture. Again, I think this will be earth-shattering for a lot of people out there because I came across some terms that I had no idea existed, you know? Um, in keeping with the concept of permaculture, one of the things that uh, I realize is part and parcel of it is that when you're designing uh, from a permaculture background or foundation, there is the terminology that we use that refers to zones. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, in permaculture thought around the home, there's, uh, you divide it up into zones one through five. Zone one, of course, is your immediate environment, and uh, 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 zone five is sort of like wild areas. And then you, you, zone one is areas that you use a lot. So it's between like, uh, oh, the kitchen, uh, the toilet facilities, shower, you need water there, These are, you need energy there. Uh, either uh, you know paraffin for la or lamps or candles or, or electricity or uh, definitely water, um, and then in your you maybe some food production, a vegetable garden, uh, and at the edge of your vegetable garden you might have some more permanent crops like papaya. And as you move out a little bit further in zone two, you might have an animal system with uh, either poultry or uh, ruminants in the form of goats or, or sheep or cattle. Uh, and pigs at zone two, and then zone three might be agroforestry, and, and these zones are divided on how much times you have to access them in, and over a given period of time. So if you're going to go to the woodlot in zone five or zone four, uh, four times a month to go collect firewood, uh, you definitely don't need to have that right next to the house. But if you have your vegetable garden and you like to eat vegetables every day, uh, you might want to have that very close to the house. That actually gives advantages in that you can monitor it. So if you have a uh, where we live right now, we have a uh, bunch of pecari that uh, I like eating carn, but they like eating carn too. So uh, <laughs> ideally, that would be closer to the house and further to the house. So it's all about zonation and making things uh, more efficient. Okay. Also, can you enlighten us a little bit about um, the element of sectors when it deals with perma permaculture? Well, sectors are things uh, that are external to the farm and how they affect you. So. Uh, like let's say you have the municipal dump. Well, you probably don't want to live downwind from the municipal dump. Or uh, you have a uh, banana plantation where they're using a lot of herbicide. You probably don't want to draw water from the creek that flows through the banana plantation. Um, sectors are things like wind, you know, where, where you design your house so that if you're burning with a wood-burning cook stove, uh, that the wind will carry the smoke away from your house instead of into it. Or if you have a composting toilet that may have a smell at certain times of the year, uh, if you have a lot of people using it, you probably don't want to put that upwind from where you are. Uh, then you look at uh, other analysis. Like here in an urban environment, you would say, okay, well, there's noise. Um, do I want to have it where on the busy, you know, I want my house 
right up on the edge of the lot close to the busy street or do I want it to the back? Well, there's advantages of having it up on the street. You have more of a social life interacting with your neighbors, but the advantage of having it at the back of your lot is that you have less noise. Um, do you want to buy a house down the street from the disco that's up until 2 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, uh, Thursday through Sunday or whatever? So these are all, all, all the things that are external but have effects to you. Uh, or flooding, for example. Flooding is the big one. I mean, uh, uh, Belize City, uh, this last, uh, I think it was November, we were up here a bunch um, and on our way to Cuba for a conference, and uh, Belize City flooded several times while we were here. Every time we, we leave, we come back a week later, it would flood again. So Belize City, that's a sector uh, and, and that you have to be aware of, that you, you live in a, a low area and the water table rises at, at times of the year. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Switching gears a little bit, I'd, I'd like to lend some insight to our listeners with regards to the experience that I had at the PDC over the two-week period. And not only were we involved in discussions and lectures or what have you, but there were also field trips that were incorporated into it. And uh, let's see, the first field trip was to Mr. Burton Kalis's farm. Um, I know he's on the road there. I can't remember exactly which village he's situated in. He's in Maphrodite. Ah, Maphrodite. Yes, yes, yes. And I will say that um, I was very much impressed with Mr. Burton, what he's been doing. Uh, he gave us a lot of insight with regards to when he began uh, applying permaculture techniques and fundamentals. And he also made it very clear that... Uh, you know, again, here I am with, you know, I'm anti-status quo, right, <laughs> on a lot of things. And he also said that when he first got into it, he was highly discouraged by you know, the powers that be. Well, one of the big problems we have with agriculture, I believe, is the biggest agricultural production models that are promoted are ones that export. So you're looking at citrus, uh, banana, sugar cane. Uh, now we have cacao, which is excellent and lends itself well to diverse polycultures. Um, and uh, we don't talk a lot about food security. And so um, I think part of the problem is that uh, Mr. Burton always talks about how uh, food production, local food production is, is a side thing that people talk about. Uh, and that they, they, when kids learn about agriculture, they're trained in, in export-oriented things. They're trained to use agrochemicals, which we don't produce in Belize, and we have to purchase from abroad, uh, and represent a, a serious threat uh, to the people using them. My good friend, Mr. Pablo Cal, uh, used herbicides when he was young, and he just died of uh, throat cancer this last year, which was very sad. He was very another very good farmer. A lot uh, was out planting mahogany trees at 65 years old, um, when I asked him why, he said it was for, for somebody will get the benefit. He said it's either be his kids or somebody. Anyway, not many farmers think like that. The other thing is that we, we, uh, we have a tendency in Belize to look down on farmers. On, and, uh, n you know, uh, you, you get electricity courtesy of an electrician. You need that whenever you turn the light bulb on. Uh, but everybody three, three times a day gets their food courtesy of farmers. And I think we should show farmers more respect. And I think the other thing that discourages him is that young people don't want to be farmers. Um, we, we're, we, we talked about this during the PDC, but we've got general cultural erosion going on in Belize that, that young people want to uh, imitate the things they see on American TV, and 
they don't see they see people walking around with their trousers falling off their ass and cramping up their hands like they got arthritis, and that's glorified. And we don't see uh, people actually farming. And when we do, it, it, it's it's uh, either um, sort of ridiculed or or seen as less than desirable. When actually farming is a wonderful way to live, and uh, we have land for it. And uh, uh, yeah, so I think he was discouraged by that as well. Yes. I really marveled at the biodiversity on his farm, and I think what really drove home the fact that uh, going the route of permaculture is in fact bucking the system, like you said, not using these, these pesticides and things of this nature to any extent, and just utilizing what is there naturally. And it, it was very, very impressive. I mean, he has a very nice spread out there. We didn't get to see all of it, but what I saw was very impressive. And he's a very, very um, amicable person, very nice fellow. You could tell he's a hardworking man, and he's, he's out there doing his thing. We also visited the farm of Mr. Saul Garcia. Yes, he also has a very impressive farm. Uh, some of the things he's doing out there is quite unique, you know. <laughs> he has a lot of uh, biodiversity. And it looks like he's been at it for quite some time himself, because I think he's probably in his 70s, no? Yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit about Mr. Saul's farm. Oh, uh, well, Mr. Saul is my personal hero. I, he, he has a truly marginal piece of land for agriculture. It's the, the heart of it is a north-facing ravine, very steep. And if he did shifting cultivation, slash and burn, um, he would have lost all that soil very quickly and wouldn't have recovered. Uh, he did some cultivation of annual crops in there, but he went into tree crops, and he's always expanding in the periphery, and he has cacao, and coffee, and citrus, and mame, and breadnut, and breadfruit, and golden plum, and pear, and uh, coffee, and uh, we got excited. Uh, we did a sort of rapid uh, biological assessment of an area 25 meters by 25 meters in there, and we found 22 species of plants uh, in addition to his cacao in that area. It's a relatively small area, 22 species of plants useful to him. Uh, in the cacao itself, there were three distinct cultivars in there. So he had very high biological diversity both uh, between species, lots of different species, and even within species, lots of different cultivars of the same species in there. His food security is absolute. You know, he, he, if a plague comes and wipes out one cultivar, he's okay because he'll have more of the same species. Let's say it wipes out a whole species. Well, he's still got in that area 22 other species of plants. So, he, I, you know, he's, he, as he says, his farm will never done because he'll always have something. So in this period of a year, that area is perpetually providing for him. It's either pears or mame or bread nut or bread fruit or citrus or uh, cacao or coffee or sugar cane or cocoa yam. Uh, he has pacaya palm, which is a camadora tepahilote. Uh, he has a lot of things going on there, all food. And uh, uh, so he's, he's an amazing model. And he was one of these farmers that was ridiculed when he was younger because they was like, why are you planting all those trees? And now, now you go there, and uh, the man is in his 70s. He still pulls Dory up and down the river every day. And uh, he, uh, he's in amazing health for a man being in his late 70s and physically active and uh, uh, and he lives a good life. You can see it. He's content. He likes what he's doing. He's making plans for the future. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he lives another 15, 20, 
30 years. I mean, I really don't know because man do, I shows no sign of slowing. So <laughs> I think the, the lifestyle agrees with them. So, yeah. Absolutely, and I can vouch for that. I mean, we were trekking up those, those hills, and uh, he was doing it like it was nothing, you know. <laughs> it was second nature for him. And finally, I recall um, going to the farm of Mr. Eladio Pop. A very, very colorful individual, you know, a cool guy, cool guy, and very amicable also. You know, he took us around the farm, showed us his papaya and other crops, and uh, yeah, I guess he also is an example of permaculture design at work. Oh yeah, I, I am. Uh, Eladio is fantastic, and it, w one of the uh, he's got a, a beautiful farm, very productive. But one of the best things about uh, Eladio is his language skills. He can communicate to everybody what he's doing and he's so infectiously enthusiastic about what he's doing that everybody leaves with a smile on their face so uh, we, we stagger it so that we visit Mr. Saul in the morning and we make a gasolina de amor which is uh, uh, sugar cane juice and everybody gets amped up on sugar cane juice and food and then we go to Eladio and <laughs> eat some food there and look at some cacao and listen to him and yeah, he, he, he's an indispensable part of, of, of uh, what we show to students when we have enough students to show farming because his farm is very no, noteworthy for its, its productivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's great. That's great. Now, kind of backtracking a little bit, I was wondering if you could just provide definitions for a couple words that people may not be uh, f associated with. Now, one of the exercises that we took part in at the farm is that we dug swales. Can you tell the listeners the significance of uh, swales? A swale is a long mechanical barrier made to retain uh, water in the, in the landscape and also to avoid runoff and loss of nutrients. It's basically a ditch dug on contour. So what, what contour is decided as being at the same level no matter what the topography is. So you go out with uh, something we call an A-frame level, which uh, is, uh, you can probably Google it if you're interested, and it's a very old technique to decide exactly where level is. And we put out long swale on contour, and uh, as in the rainy season, when the rains come, it washes the nutrients down the hill, uh, they accumulate in these swales, and the water runs off, having dropped its nutrient load, and goes to the next swale, where it drops off more. And that, that way we're able to retain uh, as much nutrients as we can in landscape. Another benefit is that we store water in the landscape, which again, because we have such a pronounced dry season, is very important. So uh, swales are a really good way to do that. Thank you. And the next term is mulch, mulching. Mulching. Okay. I remember you had a story behind the Mascarenas mulching method. Yes. All right. Uh, we had a wonderful intern, uh, Kevin Mascarenas, who is doing his master's degree in permaculture uh, at a university in England. And he came over and, and uh, he was with us for about three months building uh, uh, our piggery. We came up with a piggery design and, and we built it and we raised pigs with it. Uh, and there would be downtime when we didn't have enough critical mass to continue the work. Uh, so what we would do is uh, he would go out and start weaving these intricate baskets on contour uh, or in, in U-shapes and like a scoop to collect nutrients above uh, the root zone of a target species. Most of what he was working with is coffee. I uh, did a few cacao trees. And he put them out all over the farm. And I, we, I paid attention and I watched what, what he was doing and I, then I watched the rates of growth. And what, the place where he did this, we saw increased rates of growth because uh, both the, the nutrients that had been piled up in the form of biomass, uh, primarily leaves and branches and flowers and a little bit of chicken manure, 
uh, fed the plants, and the plants would grow better. It would also provide habitat for soil uh, microorganisms like bacteria and fungi who would come in and convert those nutrients into a form that would be beneficial to the uh, target species, in this case, cacao and coffee. So I modified that. That's the 3M technique, the mascarenous mulching method. Uh, but the, uh, we came up with a new one called the 4M technique, which is the modified mascarenous mulching method. Because I don't have time to weave lots of baskets, but I do have lots of banana stems. So I, I take the banana stems and I make a sort of an open U or an open V where the open part is facing uphill and then the closed part is downhill above the target, uh, the root zone of the target species. And then I fill that in with a mixture of compost and uh, 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 charcoal, uh, the biochar, which is another topic uh, which we may touch on or may not, uh, and uh, leaf, leaf litter. And uh, what that does is it stores uh, moisture in the, in the dry season. It stays damp underneath there. And then also that, uh, all that biomass becomes food for soil microorganisms. We've seen incredible rates of growth on cacao. We are seeing cacao reaching its first horquette in uh, 18 months and branching. Uh, we're seeing coffee that uh, was flowering in 18 months instead of two years. Um, so this is a technique of promise that we're working on and documenting. So, yes. Okay, and what you just described with regards to the modification of the 3M technique, I guess could tie into the principle of multiple, multiple functions, uh, and, uh, among other principles, no? purely permaculture at work. Well, you, you mentioned biochar, and I know that Albert Bates would be very, very happy. No? Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that concept for me? Okay. Uh, biochar is the technique where you burn something in the absence of oxygen. And, like, uh, uh, and what happens is when you're doing that, uh, the, the carbonaceous material uh, off-gases, and off-gases all the flammable gases, which are then burned in an oxygen-rich environment. What's left behind is charcoal. Now, one gram of charcoal, if you look at it under a microscope, looks like a series of holes with holes coming off of holes, off of holes, off of holes. It's, it's completely porous. Now, all of those pores provide lots and lots of surface area. Our surface area is habitat for soil microorganisms. Um, so we take our, our biochar. We have a, a, a couple biochar stoves that we've ma made. One of them involves an old propane tank and a 55-gallon drum, which are ubiquitous everywhere in the world. Uh, and uh, we burn in the outer drum, uh, which heats the contents of the inner drum, which is the propane tank. Uh, inner drum is, uh, the propane tank is inverted, and where the gas val valve is, is open, and then the top is, is closed. Um, so as it gets hot, it off-gasses through the bottom, which reaches the air that's coming in through the holes in the bottom of the 55-gallon drum and burning. As it burns, it makes a lot of heat. We use that to cook. Uh, uh, well, we fire up a Dutch oven and we bake bread or we bake turkey or um, we also use it to cook pig food. Sometimes we have lots of bread nut and we, you know, we uh, feed that to the pigs. And the result is uh, lots and lots of charcoal. And we use small diameter things for charcoal, little cacao pods with cheryl wilt, long pieces of bamboo packed in there, rice hulls, uh, cahoon seed. Um, and what happens is when we put that in the piggery, the pigs stomp on it and they urinate on it and defecate on it, and then we mix that in with our compost. We take the, the green leaves of Tetonia diversifolia or other plant matter, and we chop that all up so that we make excellent compost with it. When we make the excellent compost with it, we end up with uh, just 
astoundingly productive compost. And we add that to the root zone of trees that we're planting, and that's where we're seeing these fantastic rates of growth. So, um, and biochar, biochar is, just, is, uh, is basically what they call pyrolysis. It's the burning in the absence of oxygen. So everything off gases, and the only thing that's left behind is the carbon. Okay, I really appreciate that explanation. Something that, um, again, needs to be taken advantage of within the whole construct of permaculture. Now, <coughs> excuse me, just to give the listening public a little bit more insight with regards to the ebb and flow of how things went at the farm over the two-week period, we, we touched on a lot of the subjects that we uh, just spoke of, and I'd also just very, like, very briefly like to mention that we had a session on natural building, mm -hmm. and that was courtesy of Mr. Zane Ingersoll. Yeah. Zane is a cool dude. <laughs> yeah, and uh, for me it was very, very new, a very new concept. Um, he talked about a lot of different things, a lot of different natural elements that can be used in, in building and whatnot. So I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Well, natural building is, is a traditional way of building here. You look at, um, you don't see them so much anymore, but up north you used to see uh, pimienta houses that were uh, stuccoed, they had clay put on the outside and then uh, in the end they, they would uh, paint it with white lime and it would look, if you looked at it from a distance it would look like a very nice little cement house but really it was pimienta stick, uh, uh, clay and dirt, uh, straw and then wh whitewash with white lime. Uh, embodied energy in that is very small and it's actually you could build a very decent house that's very comfortable for minimal expense. Uh, and that's one example. The other example is traditional houses that uh, Maya people use in Toledo district where they have vertical boards and a thatch roof where they're using cahoon palm leaves for, for the thatching um, or a stone house. I live in a stone house. I collected uh, stone out of the river and then gravel out of the river and built myself a nice stone house uh, in anticipation of Hurricane Iris, which uh, Hurricane Iris actually hit before I... I finished the house, but I, after Hurricane Mitch happened and I watched it heading towards us and then going to Honduras and killing 11,000 people, I started building my stone house because I wanted something solid. Um, so natural building is, is building with things that are available um, and, uh, you know, ubiquitous. We have clay all over Belize. You can build a nice house out of, clay, out of cob. Um, you just need a good foundation to keep the cob up out of the water in case the soil is moist and then a good roof to keep the walls from getting wet. Okay, very good. Now, getting on to a topic that I think is very, very applicable to the Belize City <coughs> excuse me, situation, uh, urban permaculture. We touched on it a little bit, but um, again, I'd just like to kind of elaborate a little bit more so that the Belize City Massive can get the sense with regards to permaculture is not all about being outside the city. We can incorporate some of these basic tenets here in the city. And I can actually recall um, one of the lectures by Marisha where she outlined a lot of things that are characteristic of permaculture or can be utilized in the cities, the urban areas, for permacultural purposes. And I have a list here. I'll just go down it real quick. And that includes, and these are characteristics of city or urban areas. Uh, the lack of space, but that also translates into a creative use of space. 
Yes, there is more pollution, but with regards to that, that gives you more opportunities to try and offset it, you know? Um, well, there's centralized utilities, tra public transport, there's social interaction, you have access to markets. There are certain limitations with regards to what you can do in the city, but all the same, that tends to lend to the creativity that you can employ with regards to the implementation and the lobbying for bylaws that can allow certain things. Um, there's lots of materials in the cities that are here that can be used for composting. I mean, <laughs> it's the largest population center, so there's a lot of waste. Okay. Um, and basically along those lines, that is what I gleaned from the discussion, but I think that, like all things, uh, not only in Belize, but I guess because IDR and I, I, feel, I feel the pain every day, <laughs> it's, it's more uh, of a mental thing. It's a mental thing. We have to attune our minds to the realities and realize that, hey, let us utilize what we have. Um, what is, the, what is the, the mantra of conservation? Reuse, renew, recycle. And I think that's critical that individuals, whether urban or rural, we, we implement that into our, our psyche as, as deeply as possible. Because, I mean, our resources are, are not infinite. They truly are not. Uh, actually, that, that points out to something that, that urban permaculture is sort of the, the, um, the frontier of permaculture right now because it's where the, the need is the highest um, and it's where the opportunities abound. Um, we, one of the things is uh, the, the model that I took up, which I started 25 years ago, was I found a, a piece of land that was run down and abandoned in the middle of nowhere that nobody wanted, and I ended up there, and I worked with that. But I was young. Land was very cheap. Um, land is no longer cheap in Belize. And uh, um, so uh, now uh, people need to be more creative when they think about food production. Uh, there's a bunch of design considerations and constraints that you have in, the, in an urban environment. Uh, some of it is code. Like, you can't keep a pig in, in Belize City, and for good reasons. You know, pigs make lots of noise. They have smells, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you can do vegetable production, and you could do fruit production, and uh, you can do ornamental gardens to make your neighborhood look pretty. Uh, and you can, and in fact, uh, there was a study that I read a few years ago that uh, ornamental plantings in, in neighborhoods dropped crime rates because people felt better. And there, it was a study, and I can't remember honestly where it came from, but he talked about people who planted gardens in neighborhoods found that the crime rate dropped. And the reason why was because people had more investment in the neighborhood. The neighborhood was a more pleasing place to be in. Uh, people started to take pride. Now, we are such a small country. When I see these divisions come up based on uh, neighborhoods, gang affiliations, um, uh, even politics or religion uh, or ethnicity, we, we're all part of Belize and we all need to work together. And here in Belize City, is the place that needs permaculture the most because you have the food desert. You have an area with you know, 60 or 70,000 people now and very little food production locally. All the food is coming in by truck um, or by boat, uh, but yet we have uh, everybody seems to have some potential for food production, or most everybody, even if you only could put a few tomatoes in an uh, old, uh, uh, old um, 
recycled container that you have on the balcony of your of your apartment that you're renting or up on the cement roof you could be doing green uh, do a green roof up there and do it all in containers that would be easy to do here in Belize City for lots of the country or for lots of the city rather so I think that that is truly the place where where this is needed the most and it's one of the things that I look forward to working with you on, uh, on that in the future identifying uh, places where that can be done and, and identifying people who are interested in that and working on that because Belize City needs it more than anywhere else in the country um, you know because of this uh, the crime problem and uh, sort of the low rates of employment and all, all of the problems that plague the city now, I actually did spend a lot of time in, in Belize City back in the 1980s and early 90s. I used to bring my Guatemalan textiles and sell them on Albert Street. And I'd sit there and I would sell it. And I was young and I would make a little bit of money and that was enough for me. And I wouldn't do that anymore because the uh, threshold for violence has dropped significantly. Um, and, uh, and the desperation is much higher because even in the 80s, things were poor. But, and, you know... And Belize City was hard, but I'm from New York City, and it wasn't that hard. But now it's that hard. <laughs> so I, I uh, so Belize City really needs that more than any other place in the country. Ne needs to start localized food production, uh, and the benefit of that is if you can train young people to grow gardens and grow vegetables, um, you you prepare them uh, to work elsewhere. We did some work with a project at Belize Botanic Gardens, training uh, young people how to do farming on how to do vegetable gardening and how to think about agriculture. And we would train them the Latin names of plants. I like using the Latin names of plants because um, we, we speak so many different languages here and one plant could have five different names. You know, I've got a name in Kekchi, Mopan, Garifuna, Spanish, uh, English, Creole, uh, now German and, and Taiwanese. And, and then plus in Spanish alone, uh, Belizean Spanish, Guatemalan Spanish, Honduran, Mexican Spanish, could have a different name for everything. So I use Latin names for everything. We train that. Um, and also the advantage of that is the young kids that left that program, they, when they go looking for a job, they, they know the Latin names, and the person they're talking to realizes that this young person has some information, isn't just uh, some dummy with a machete that they can hire. Um, but we need to do that because if we give young people uh, an avenue for their creativity and uh, an alternative to sitting around bored, you know, you get them involved, get them working, then they're producing their own food, they're less dependent on earning income to provide food. Uh, they might have a surplus that they can sell or they can share. Um, and then they're busy doing something instead of busy doing nothing. And that, that's the enemy uh, of, of the city right now is young people that have no avenues. You know, even UB graduates get a degree in business, and they come out, there's not that much business in Belize. What the you know, number one business of Belize should be farming because we have food needs and we have land. Even here in the city we could be doing it. So yeah, Belize City is very important for that. And I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because as you were talking, uh, a name popped into my mind of uh, a fellow he happens to share my last name. We're not family or anything, but his name is Perry Smith. He goes by the name of Sticks. Mm -hmm. He's affiliated with Krem uh, and Amandala. He's, I think, their community reporter. But I really admire uh, Sticks because he's one of those individuals that is willing to roll up his sleeves and, and, and do the job, you know? And he's not looking for accolades. But uh, what he's done on several occasions for 
inner city communities are what he calls these days of healing. And he just basically provides an opportunity for children, the youths, anyone to come out and just feel the love, basically. Right? And I was looking at the Amandala, I think of for this past week, and he's doing something in his community involving gardening. So I will definitely have to be the conduit between yourself and, and sticks. I'll hook on to up on Facebook and right. we'll work like that, right? But I, I'm quite certain that sticks would, would definitely be interested in what we were talking about and moving forward. Because as you said, uh, you know, I've seen believe the face of Belize City changed considerably over the past 20 odd years. And it's uh, not in the direction that one would like. But definitely if we start at the grassroots level and we provide opportunities, at least provide a glimmer of hope for individuals that are otherwise um, in what one might deem somewhat destitute um, conditions, it would give that spark of hope so that we can move forward and make this place a better place. And one of the things, though, and I, you, you brought this up earlier, um, and something that I, I really subscribe to, is that, you know, we, we have in Belize poverty, quote-unquote, but in comparison to some of our neighbors in Central America, we are very rich. Yep. Trust me. And I, one of the things that I use as a means by which to justify that or you know, validate it is that why do you think we have so many Im immigrants coming to Belize? Because they recognize what is here. They recognize not necessarily overt opportunities, but one of the things that I admire about migrants uh, in general who come to Belize from the Central American Republics is that they're very industrious people for the most part. They will find something to do. Trust me, right? If it means selling vegetables on the corner or making pupusas or something like that, they will do it in a majority sense. So, yeah, I really, really appreciate that input. Well, we're, we're closing in about maybe 10 more minutes. Okay. And, I, you know, I'm just, man, I could talk for hours on permaculture. Actually, we, we've almost talked for two hours. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I would like to give some personal revelation with regards to my experience uh, with this year's uh, PDC held at Maya, Mar Maya Mountain Research Farm in San Pedro, Colombia, Toledo District. It was uh, a very enlightening, engaging, just very fulfilling experience. Uh, my good friend Will Mejia, <laughs> I have to laugh when I say this, <laughs> He, after it was done, the man looked at me and said, Why? He said, I really tip my hat to you, man. He said, Because you made it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, you know, hey, I like to think of myself as someone that is adaptable. And it's very important. I think that that's something that Belizeans across the board have to try to institute and begin to emulate because times are changing. And like you said, uh, right now we did talk about why gas was so cheap back then. Yeah. About five years from now, <laughs> it's going to be even higher. You know? And that goes for a lot of the commodities that we are dependent upon. So we have to be able to multitask. We have to be able to diversify. We have to be able to adapt and adopt. 
And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, permaculture so attractive to me because I can see the, the fundamental and core elements of permaculture as being salient to the existence and longevity of, of Belize. It's really, really key. I think that permaculture is something that a lot of people may not be acquainted with, literally, but the fundamental elements are there. And if we do outreach such as this and what you do at the farm, I believe that we can definitely make a, a nice, nice impact on the Belizean psyche and Belizean culture in general. Yes, that's true. I think uh, we're looking at a time of profound change. I mean, we, we've had this 150 years of unprecedented prosperity and growth, and everything that grows eventually has to stop growing, and will reach senescence, and it will start to decay. That's true of all biological organisms, and it's true of economies, too. I mean, you, you look at every great empire that ever existed, collapsed eventually, either, and the, the, you can tie growth to the collapse of every great empire. Uh, the, the Roman Empire expanded beyond its capacity to maintain itself. Maya Empire uh, expanded beyond the population density, beyond the carrying capacity of the land. Uh, the English Empire, too far flung, uh, ended up leaving behind little pockets of civility like Belize. Uh, and, you know, and thank goodness for that English heritage because it left us a... a a pretty reasonable form of government and, and judicial system, more or less. Um, so, uh, and so all of these things come to an end. But our present um, economic uh, model cannot last much longer. And, uh, and so what we need to do is start thinking about how we adapt to the future that's coming, because it is coming. And, and we can pretend it's not coming, and we can pretend that this will maintain itself forever. Um, the same way when I was young, growing up in New York City, I would walk in Times Square and think that will last forever. Now, if you can imagine in the 7th century that you were coming from someplace and you were walking the grounds of Caracol, biggest city in Central America, just defeated Tikal, big city, and you walk the grounds of Caracol and you look at that big t pyramid and you said to yourself, wow, this will last forever. It didn't. Uh, what we're in right now isn't going to last forever either. So what we need to do is start making plans for a more resilient economy and a more productive society and uh, everything else. So uh, anyway, Paco, thank you very much for having me on your show. I very much appreciate your uh, taking the time to uh, have me here and um, a chance to talk to your listeners. And for those of you who might ever end up in Toledo District. Uh, we do love having visitors and uh, uh, you can look us up on Facebook and contact us and uh, make arrangements to come visit. And I'll just point out that every Saturday we bake pizza. So. <laughs> I, I miss out on the pizza, but uh, you'll see me down there next Saturday. Trust me. Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, just to close up very quickly, I neglected to mention uh, that one of the inspirational discussions we had during the course was from yourself when you talked about the relationship between the indigenous Maya and permaculture because they in fact practiced many elements of it here in Belize. So I just wanted to acknowledge that also and I, that's happened in Belize and all throughout the, the Maya world. You know, I mean, well, Maya Aztec because in, in Mexico City 
there were instances of um, permaculture at work yeah. before the Spaniards came and, and, the, and there are, and there, are um, there are components of what you would call permaculture in all the tr traditional societies in Africa and Asia and uh, historically there have been and historically there are right now in many places that are uh, suburban or uh, not fully industrialized we see that I mean right here in Belize we see that you know uh, and not just in Maya communities in other places um, and so uh, it's just that the changes that are happening that we've eroded some of that and it, we're eroding it at a time when we need it um, we do a permaculture design course every year um, and it's, it's usually in February and March. Uh, we're considering um, doing a, a uh, sort of a weekend course uh, here in Belize City for Belizeans um, over a period of about 12 months. We do one weekend a month, uh, something that I need to pursue with Paco. Um, but it is something that we would like to do because we would like to get this information out there. We love Belize and we want Belize to... to prosper and grow, even in difficult and changing times. Um, so that's something that we should uh, talk about that. And we also like to, uh, uh, well, we welcome Belizean interns. If there's a Belizean student that would like to come and spend time with us, um, uh, they can come and intern with us for a period of uh, a week or uh, up to a month or maybe longer, depending on what they want. Uh, and they can learn by getting their hands uh, dirt under their fingernails. And uh, and so we welcome that, and we're, we're open to that. We, we love to work w w with people in our country. So, Excellent, excellent. Well, in wrapping up, again, Chris, I thank you so much uh, for sharing with us all of this valuable information with regards to permaculture, its principles, uh, the ethics behind it, the practical applications, and what have you. Before we sign out, can you please give me your contact information for the Maya Mountain Research Farm? Uh, we are located two miles up the river from um, San Pedro, Colombia. Uh, we have a post office box, PO Box 153 in Punta Gorda Town. Uh, and I have a phone number, 630-4386, uh, the uh, nation code of 501 for those of you abroad. Uh, and then uh, you can contact us at info at mmrfbz.org. So Mary Mary Romeo Foxtrot Bravo uh, Zulu.org. So for those of you who do ham radio stuff. Uh, so and we would, we love to have visitors and and we love to work with Belizeans. We we particularly like student groups. So uh, for all you educators out there. Um, talk to us, uh, we can work something out uh, um, uh, and you can bring students to come stay with us for the weekend. We like that. We have 24 beds. Uh, we love Belizean student groups um, and so we're, we're an available resource for education. For, so if it's something that this sounds interesting to you, feel free to pursue that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chris. And as an individual who personally experienced some time out at the MMRF, I Definitely, for what it's worth, I give my endorsement. It's a great opportunity. Uh, check them out. Uh, touch base with them and get involved. Get to know a little bit more about this very, very valuable concept, permaculture, and how it can lead to greater prosperity for the nation and the people of Belize. In closing, again, I would like to extend my appreciation to, to Chris, Selene, the entire staff of the MMRF, outstanding food, 
the ambiance, everything was great. I, I didn't get a chance to eat the turkey, <laughs> but maybe next time. And um, you have a course coming up next month, no? Uh, an advanced course? Well, we, ha we have an advanced permaculture design course, which will be the 9th through 14th, and it will be uh, taught by Larry Salzman and Jono Nager and myself. On, and it's a five-day uh, course, and you get a certificate. So. Okay, and well, if you want more information, just check the Facebook page of MMRF, and we can take it from there. Radio listeners, thanks a lot for your patronage, checking out the show. You got a kinder, lighter side of <laughs> Belizean hard talk, <laughs> the tipping point. It was a nice change. Uh, the next time we're on air, we'll be dealing with some really, really interesting issues. I have recently penned uh, an article that delves into the situation in Venezuela right now, at least based on my perspective. So if you want to check it out, it should be on the Caribbean News Now in a few days. Okay? As always, God bless. Thank you for listening. And with that, I leave you with the virtues of peace, love, and guidance. Take care, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.